As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello and welcome to Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone, joined by the first team today, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas. Good morning, guys. Morning, Ian. Morning. Uh, Home win, clean sheet. Probably a little bit happier than last week, although I don't think it was too unhappy. We just understood that we were coming up against a team who were next level, whereas on Saturday we came up against a team who will very soon be I think, uh, at another level to us. I mean, they're going to be in the Championship. I don't mean they're going to spend a billion pounds of being in the Champions League, but that's a possibility as well. We will, of course, discuss the win over Newcastle. But I think the nicest moment, uh, and we can discuss this, of course, was uh, Gabby Martinelli uh, coming on and scoring after just 93 seconds. Uh, James came up with this question, this uh, idea. Uh, who are the best Arsenal impact subs over the years? Um, we were just chatting about this before we started. Amy went and got what looked like an enormous encyclopedia of Arsenal. I mean, that's essentially what it is. And you found some information, did you not, Amy? Well, I just wanted to refresh my memory to see if this person was actually a sub. Uh, And indeed he was. So, dear listener, come back in time, if you will, to the uh, heady days of May 1989. Famous a little bit uh, later on in the month for what was to come. But this was a bit before. And an away day at Middlesbrough. Uh, and Arsenal were going uh, desperately to try and win the league with that team and had a tough away game, and it was nil-nil with a few minutes to go, and up-stepped Martin Hayes, sub that day, to score one of the most important, but perhaps not so well-remembered in the annals of time. Smith's header, Hayes going in! Martin Hayes! A goal out of nothing for Arsenal from one length of the field to the other. Goals for Arsenal in that famous, famous season. So um, I'm going to give it to Martin Hayes for my impact sub of uh, of all-time Arsenal. Excellent. 
Excellent. And so niche. And so you as well, Amy, I think, really, as well. It's beautiful. I'm just a bit annoyed I couldn't remember for sure that he was a sub without checking. But anyway, I thought I'd better get my facts right. Also you, that you would punish yourself for not remembering for certain that it was Martin Hayes who scored the No, I knew goal. it was... Uh, I certainly knew it was him. I just wasn't sure if he started or was a sub. So that was, that was the clarification I needed. And shout out, by the way, to this great encyclopedia of Arsenal, um, which is the complete record... Uh, 1886 to 2018, so not quite up to date, but close, by Josh James, Mark Andrews and Andy Kelly. And it is a veritable mine of information for those who need to know absolutely every tiny weeny detail since time began on Arsenal. And a massive lump of a book as well, I may say. Very handy (laughs) for many reasons. What about you, James? What you got? I'm going to go more recent and maybe a little bit more obvious and Nicholas Bentner in the North London derby in 2007. I think Opta timed it as 1.8 seconds between him entering the field and scoring the goal. Literally ran on from the corner, met it and nodded it into the the bottom of the net. So, yeah, that was a very, very memorable moment uh, in a big game as well, derby as well. I think that was the winning goal. I think it might have finished 2-1. Yeah. So Amy, yeah, you got the hard for me to look past. Look. Amy can check it out for me for sure, but I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, thumbs through. If you hear a thump, it's half the book slamming on the desk. Um, all right. Uh, well, I mean, the obvious one, of course, is Thierry Henry coming on against Leeds and scoring that goal in that game and the look on his face. Um, I just want to mention one more recent one. Uh, Callum Chambers came on against was it was it Leeds it was in the effort in the League Cup sorry yeah it was Leeds in the League Cup I don't have an enormous tome to look up I just but I was there and what I remember is Callum coming on poking home the ball and then running over to uh, uh, the bench and um, everyone laughing and there is all that there's always that thing isn't there oh what what a great substitution but he just got on the end of a corner essentially didn't he and uh, and fair play to him for doing that Uh, very very lovely moment and we'll, let's say we'll definitely talk about Gabby Martinelli and his uh, I mean, more than a cameo, really, I think. Um, I should remind you that you can get a third off an Athletic subscription by heading to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. That is a third off an Athletic subscription where you can read writing by James and Amy and Art, who's on here uh, regularly uh, as well. Uh, go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. Tomiyasu over the top for Martinelli. Gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Now that is high impact. How easy did he make that look? That is supreme from the Brazilian. Arsenal 2, Newcastle 0. Sort of a routine home win against a a team lower down the table. Um, James... We haven't really done that for a while. I said to you just before we, we came on here, I was fairly confident about that game. Uh, were you before we started? I was, I have to say. And I think after the Liverpool match, you know, Arsenal were looking to get back on track and the fixture list was pretty kind to them. They were facing the team at the bottom of the Premier League, a team against which they were likely to dominate possession. But I think that presented a challenge of its own to this Arsenal side. You know, they're, they're not showing themselves to be brilliant at breaking down teams and they had to be patient. They had to wait for the right moment and they had to take their chances when they came. And, you know, it got to half time at nil-nil. Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang had missed a very presentable chance. You thought, is this going to be one of those days? But 
credit to particularly the younger players in the team who came through in those moments. I mean, I thought they were both fantastic goals, really, and a demonstration of the kind of potential this team does have. We might not see it all the time, but that was a real flicker of brilliance, both from Saka and Martinelli. Um, and yeah, ultimately, like you say, quite a routine victory and pleased to get a clean sheet as well, especially after conceding four the previous weekend. Yeah, um, well, the, I'll, I'll talk about Aaron Ramsdale's save in a bit because I don't think people enthused enough about that save at the end of, from John Joe Shelby's shot. We know how, how clean cleanly he can hit the ball and I thought it was an absolutely fantastic save. But now everything, of course, is compared to the one he made at Leicester the other week and you go, yeah, yeah, that was, that was merely excellent as opposed to sort of how did he even do that uh, but I want to talk to you Amy about um, Nuno Tavares and Sambi Laconga he kept them in Arteta kept them in the team a lot of people particularly Nuno de Tavares were surprised because Kieran Tini was fit and ready to play but he didn't want to drop those guys after the p- uh, poor performances at Liverpool and they both produced for him didn't they? Absolutely uh, I think that was really um, a good sign of sort of the spirit within the camp and even in that first half, Nuno Tavares kept taking these pot shots that were sort of like, almost like, can we do some Thomas Partey impressions out here and uh, just whack it from anywhere and see what happens. And there were a couple of them that were a little bit wild and some of the people around me were getting a little bit frustrated. I thought, mm, guys, you know, don't get on this kid's back now. And actually his second half was outstanding. Uh, he showed, I think, exactly why he's such an interesting prospect. And the whole sort of, as a side note, the um, the whole debate about Tierney versus Tavares, and they're quite different players, really, serves up an, a, an alternative possibility of sometimes playing them both. Uh, the idea that maybe Nuno plays in front of Tierney in some matches is quite an interesting one. Uh, having said that, I did like the combinations that were starting to... Um, flourish between Smith Rowe and Nuno Tavares as well down that side, where they you can see that they're beginning to develop an understanding of who goes and who uh, either overlaps or underlaps. And it, it, I think it would be a handful, as you know, if they've given a bit of time to develop together for people on that flank from the opposition. Yeah, I um, I mean. Tavares was pointed out by um, um, Mika Richards on Match of the Day. I mean, he was enthusing about him. Uh, obviously, uh, ex-fullback enthusing about another fullback, but he deserved it, didn't he, Tavares? Uh, James, have you? I haven't really seen a player like Tavares. That athleticism that when there was a little exchange of passes, a nice little triangle that they played, and Tavares ran on ahead of the ball and suddenly was away, and it was um, it was thrilling to watch him stride down the pitch with those long legs of his. Yeah, he is an astonishing athlete and I don't say that to dismiss his other qualities because clearly, you know, we saw some really interesting positioning from him in terms of the the areas he took up on the field. I think he's got a good level of technical ability. I think one thing that's very interesting about him is that he's quite two-footed. He's happy to come inside, play with his right foot as well as his left. That brings another dimension to the play. But I do think that the most eye-catching feature of his game is those astonishing kind of lung-bursting runs down the flank. There were two in this game where, you know, he went shoulder to shoulder with somebody and went past them. And when he hits top speed, he's almost unstoppable. It reminds me in some respects of when 
a young Colo Torre first came into the Arsenal side and he was playing all over the pitch, really. I remember him playing left midfield, right midfield, fullback at times. And he, again, was this unbridled enthusiasm and athleticism. And it wasn't always honed. It was a little bit raw at times. But you knew that there was something quite special there, that if it could be harnessed, you'd have a really fantastic player on your hands. I don't know if anyone foresaw at that time that being at centre-back and you know the maturation process that Colo went through. But Tavares is a really interesting prospect. And considering that he was bought as... You know, a backup player for Kieran Tierney. I don't think anybody anticipated that he'd be giving him the run for his money for a first team place that he's actually providing. So he's been an excellent signing and is exceeding expectations. I do think there are still elements of his game that need work, that need a little bit of finesse, but the raw material, I mean, for a coach, it must be a dream to get that kind of raw material to work with. Quite. Uh, I mean, I mean, both of them. Both of the uh, the fullbacks, Tommy as well, stepped inside and had had shots on their wrong feet, if you like. And um, I like that they're taking chances. Although, as Amy said, there was definitely a little bit of disquiet after the third one ended up in club level. But you know, at least have a go. And 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 the, the fact that uh, uh, Thomas Partey was mentioned, as we mentioned, Thomas Partey there. A slightly disappointing game from him, uh, Amy. Uh, do you think he's okay? Do you think he's there's something not quite right with him? He doesn't seem quite on it. He gave the ball away more than anyone else in the uh, in the team at the weekend. I don't know. I mean, uh, I hope everything's all right uh, for him, but uh, it definitely doesn't seem to be sort of grasping games and and looking like he's ready to dominate them at the moment. And it was good to see Sambi step up and, and like show personality. I think in the game, um, I saw. I think it was Albino tweeted a quite interesting stat talking about sort of chance creators in the team. And as you might expect, I think Saka and Smith Rowe are, are one and two. And third over the course of the season is Sambi. Yeah, you know he he is he is also uh, um, similarly to. What James was saying about Nuno Tavares, you know, he's got some rough edges and a lot of development ahead of him. But bags of of qualities and bags of things that you would like to see grow and become more refined. But in terms of raw material, there's a hell of a player in there as well. Yeah, I like the way he, he stepped up. I mean, he, you know, he played in midfield against uh, Liverpool last week and it was obviously a bit much for him. Um, whereas this week uh, he looked... Um, he looked like another one of these players. Bags of potential, like you say, rough edges, but um, it pointing in the right direction. Um, another one who we can certainly say that about, Gabby Martinelli. Um, I was a little bit concerned. I actually voiced the fact before the game, yeah, he's great and everything, Martinelli, but he hasn't done much this season. Anyway, only comes after 93 seconds and scores the second and uh, sort of the crucial goal, really. I think we can relax after that. Um, James, if he steps up in the next three or four weeks and gets four or five goals for us, it really does help when Oba and Partey and Pepe go off to um, uh, the uh, African nations. Definitely. And I think part of the reason we saw him off the bench is that, you know, you can't just kind of plug and play a player. They need a bit of match sharpness. They need a bit of football in them if they're going to be effective in that period. And I think... Maybe that's the reason we saw Martinelli come off the bench against Newcastle ahead of, say, Nicola Pepe, who ordinarily you'd think might be the obvious choice to replace Saka on that wing. 
and yeah, what an impact. I mean, it's a sensational goal, really. Um, I think that finish is is much more difficult than it looks. He makes it look very straightforward, but watching that ball come over your shoulder, taking it on the volley, lifting it over the keeper, it's real class and it's a real reminder of that quality that he does have in the penalty box. We saw it when he first broke into the team under Unai Emery in those Europa League games, the ability to score all different kinds of goals. We've seen him score headers, volleys, one-on-ones, tap-ins. He just has that nose for goal and demonstrated it there perfectly um I, I i'm really pleased for him because it has been a difficult period he hasn't had a great deal of opportunities but Mikel Arteta has always been very clear that he's had a very good attitude he's been understanding of the situation i think perhaps with it in mind that when january comes there are going to be more chances for him and, and I think he's really thrust himself into contention to be one of the first names off the bench. And if there's going to be a bit of rotation as the festive fixture list begins to pile up, uh, hopefully he'll get a start too. But a really nice moment for him. And you could see in his celebration, it meant the world. I think with the long-term injury he had last season and the lack of minutes he's had to contend with this season, there was a, a bit of frustration and a huge amount of relief in that too. Yeah, I agree. I think that, I think it was the crowd as well as him. To be honest, I think everyone was delighted for him. Mm. You know, he's come on and 93 seconds later, he scored that that goal. Um, while we're on the subject of strikers, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, I'm not, I personally am not worried. I mean, strikers go through patches where they're not getting goals. It's only been, what, four, five games, Amy. But there's every time now that he doesn't score a goal for a few games... There seems to be these rumblings. Um, is it just Arsenal fans just having a moan about something or, or is there something deeper going on? I mean, I'm, I know you don't know that for sure, but what do you think? What's your feeling about it? Well, I just think that it's a lot easier to um, extrapolate that there's some sort of greater problem rather than just... He's always been a streaky striker who has, yes. you know, phases where everything goes in and phases where he misses a few. But I guess that age thing is what, people use as a as a potential explanation uh you know in other words is this a sign of a declining talent is this a sign of a diminishing return 32 um, is not old for a stri- for anyone though is it uh, playing football now with a, the well, fitness feel old the to me mate but uh... well to us of course <laughs> it is ridiculously young but you know yeah no but in football in strikers terms you know it's uh it's the wrong side of of thirty. Let's be honest. It's not where you're where you're going to supposedly be heading towards a peak. You're probably heading away from a peak. That's just the natural order of yeah. things. But I mean, I do remember speaking to um, Darren Burgess, who used to be the the head of sort of conditioning and all that kind of stuff, uh, physical well being and what have you, and him saying that Ober was such an extraordinary sort of specimen in terms of his his uh, acceleration and his body and the fact that he has played so much of his career without major injury and they took a kind of calculated gamble and they looked at other examples around the time of signing him uh, about how players uh, of a similar type tend to develop into their sort of uh, 30s because obviously when he came he was he was late 20s anyway yes. so that was around the corner and they're spending quite big money on a player probably without great resale value so they're trying to project and he, he kind of said in terms of numbers that everything was as good as you could possibly imagine for for Ober to 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 imagine that he's got the best chance possible of retaining that high velocity and 
the main point of reference they had was Vardy, who's a little bit older and a similar sort of type in terms of his, you know, acceleration in that in and still being very effective into well into his 30s. And I think that they felt all the um, metrics that they would use to measure such stuff led them to to feel confident that there wasn't going to suddenly be this drop off for Aubameyang for his kind of X factor of of pace and finishing. And he still, I, I, you know, it looks to me he's not far off. He's you know he's missing chances, but they've all been close. He's not been. It's not on the kind of Thomas Party scale. He's not been. You know, hitting them towards <laughs> club level, is he? He, he he's no. hits the post and a couple of in, inches, and that goes in. They're 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 all very close misses. They're sort of very small adjustments. Yeah. I'm not prepared to throw in any kind of doom and gloom just yet. Obviously, it'd be great if he was if he was scoring just... loads of goals, but uh, and I suppose it doesn't help that Lacquer's not particularly scoring that much at the moment either. You know, they're both contributing a lot to the team in their kind of play and the and the questions that are asking of opposition defence, but it sure as hell helps if you've got goals on top of that. But right. yeah, what you were just saying about Martinelli and getting more chances was interesting because he seems to increasingly get chances on the, those wide positions. So it will be interesting to see if he's getting minutes centrally as well. But people are looking to January and saying, how is Arsenal going to solve that situation of Aubameyang being away? Will Martinelli be a genuine contender in the middle? I don't know. We but shall see in the... We'll see in the next few weeks. What do you think, James? Do you think he will play down the middle, Martinelli? I don't. He doesn't seem to fancy him down there, does he? No, I think he played there in our second game of the season against Chelsea when Bermiang and Lacazette were, were both out with COVID. Balogun had played at Brentford and had a bit of a tough time. So Martinelli came in and played that one. But I do think Arteta sees him more as a wide player. Um, certainly the way in which he selected suggests that. And when Aubameyang goes away in January, you know, I think there'll also there'll be Lacazette. Uh, there'll probably be Eddie Nketiah potentially in the squad as well. So I do think Martinelli's opportunities will come on the flanks. Um, I, I like him as a centre forward. I have to say, I think he's got all the tools. I think he's got all the potential. On, on the Aubameyang question, I do think it's sort of a stylistic issue. You know, Jamie Vardy is a, an interesting comparison, but if you put Jamie Vardy against a team with... 10 men behind the ball, as Newcastle frequently had, you wouldn't see the best of him. And I think it's the same with Aubameyang. I think there are games which suit him more than others. And playing against a, a mass defence in very confined spaces, uh, I don't think plays to his strengths. I think the, the miss in the first half is obviously a really glaring miss, but in some respects it's a little bit of a red herring. I think that really the question is, is he the kind of centre-forward you, you want on an afternoon such as this and and is Lacazette and what are Arsenal going to do about that situation moving forward I think everyone's kind of dimly aware that sooner or later a new striker is going to come in at Arsenal probably next summer when Lacazette's contract expires and I think part of the analysis of Aubameyang kind of it has that shadow hanging over it I think people are kind of already looking forward to well what might the next iteration of the Arsenal centre forward look like and well you've the- written a piece uh, James along with R about these seven players uh, and and uh, are we essentially looking for a mixture of Lacazette and Aubameyang? I mean, you've talked about that a few times on this podcast. Is that what we want? Someone who can drop deep but can also run in behind and uh, and finish? 
I think so. Someone who can be a connector, but also a goal scorer. And I think Aubameyang is a brilliant goal scorer. I think he works really hard at the connection, but it's not his natural strength. I think Lacazette's better at that stuff. But as a goal scorer, you know, the, the rate of goals is diminishing. He's not taking up the same kind of quality positions in the box. And I just think physically, athletically, he struggles to do it for 90 minutes. So, yeah, I think that is going to be a big focus for Arsenal. Not so much in January, but next summer when I think, you know, there'll be a bit more movement in the market and they'll be able to get the kind of names they want. And, yeah, I do think Aubameyang, like I say, he's kind of being judged with that partly in mind. But I think he's done all right this season. I do think... He's been up and down, but I think he's been markedly better than he was the previous year. It feels like it was only a week or two ago that Arteta was talking publicly about Aubameyang leading the press and setting an example for the young players and you know how much improved his attitude has been. And uh, it just seems that you know the modern way is that after every game, we have to kind of relitigate a player's worth. Uh, and I do feel slightly for Aubameyang in that respect. Is there not a feeling that perhaps over the last 18 months, it's not just one striker that Arsenal's going to be looking for, but potentially more than that? I mean, if you think about realistically, Lacazette probably is going to go at the end of the season and Ketia mm. is probably going to go at the end of the season, if not before. Um, Martinelli, we've just established, is probably more likely to get chances out wide. Uh, you know, they might have to be quite busy. It might be... You know, Balogun obviously is, is coming through and emerging as well and has great potential, but still needs more experience, it seems, before you can you know, set your store on that being a, a you know genuine option in difficult Premier League away games or whatever. So perhaps it's going to need quite a lot of attention in that department. Well, it's definitely worth reading uh, the piece that James and Art wrote about the seven uh, strikers. Um, Let's get pick- seven. Well, I think you're right, Amy. We probably will need more than one. But uh, they've done some decent business in the transfer market in the last year. So we're thinking that the scouting and the the general sort of way that they're going about things seems to have improved. And uh, uh, hopefully they'll make the right choices. Um, By the way, up next, uh, Manchester United on a Thursday night. Ridiculous night for a football game. Although I wouldn't mind still being in the Europa. <laughs> and by the way, just a moment to uh, appreciate Tottenham losing in the uh, Only Fools and Horses League to, uh, or whatever it's called, to a team that hadn't been formed the last time they won the league. So uh, uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, thank you for that. Um, but anyway, we're playing Manchester United on Thursday night with a new manager. Uh, they've dropped Ronaldo. What's It is a significant match, uh, Amy, in 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 our season uh, is it another one of those where we see where the team are or is it hard to judge against this Man United team because you don't know what you're going to get well I think that if we're trying to look uh, strategically about uh, this season and what's what's achievable um, getting ourselves into fifth spot in the league uh, with about a third of the of the season gone shows that really somewhere between fourth and sixth is where Arsenal should really be fighting hell for leather to end up, obviously as high as possible. And we all know that if it's going to be, there's a whole uh, chunk of teams who are aiming for that fourth spot, working on the assumption that the top three will take care of itself and are probably unmovable. But there is one spot available for the rest, but it's quite a big rest that, uh, that have their eye on that. And I think if Arsenal want 
that to be them, then Man United are another team that, that probably have a bit of an eye on it too. So that's where a result is going to be extremely helpful. A bit like against Leicester, you, you know, you're trying to see off those competitors for that kind of fourth, fifth spot as much as humanly possible. So I think Arsenal have to be brave. Uh, look at the template of that Leicester away game. Uh, try not to get too sucked into whatever's going on with the atmosphere. There's obviously a kind of excitement that any new club has when they've got uh, a new management and then the kind of the agonies of what have been going on for their recent weeks and months is like been shed. So they're looking, you know, optimistically. So, yeah, I, I think it's not been a, a happy place to go for far too long, Old Trafford. But let's see if uh, some of the boldness and fearlessness, I think Ramsdale, we all know all about him. That kind of attitude will be helpful to have at the back in a game like this. But going all the way through the team, I think they need to show a lot of heart and desire to really t- try and take the game to Man United when they have chances. I'd like to see a bit more bravery in moments when it's possible to attack than was evident, for example, at Anfield. Yeah, I mean, there was a point in one of the games where, where Thomas Partey, actually just in in the game on Saturday, where Thomas Partey did not play the pass that Mikel Arteta wanted. Uh, it was slightly backwards and he was ranting. Actually, the goal came from the same move. But it, it's what Amy says, James, a bit more bravery. And this uh, May United team are there for the taking, aren't they? Yeah, they got a good result at Chelsea, but um, from what I understand, they were quite fortuitous in some respects. Uh, they should Chelsea. have lost at the end. They should have right. lost. They, yeah. It was a great chance right at the end for Rudiger. So I, I think, it, in a way, it's um, it's concerning that they appear to have sorted out some of their issues, and I think they've realised that Ronaldo uh, is a bit of a burden to carry in some respects. To be honest, I'll be delighted even so if he doesn't play on Thursday. I just have a very bad feeling about Cristiano Ronaldo and Arsenal, um, maybe based on our history with him and the trouble he's given us previously. But yeah, I think this is a really, you know, the Liverpool game, people said, oh, that's a, a, the true test of this side. You know, we'll see where they are in their development. And I, I always kind of thought, well, that's, you know, I'm not sure about that. I think Liverpool's so far ahead of where we are in our trajectory, as are probably Chelsea and Manchester City. I do think United's a more interesting read, and I do think that we're in more direct competition with them for league places. So I think this will be a fascinating, fascinating game. I really hope we can go there and get something. We did, of course, last season, got the 1-0 win. It was a big performance on the day from Thomas Partey. He's due one like that. It would be fantastic if he could produce another midfield performance of that calibre. If he can, then we've got half a chance, certainly. Quite. Personally, I want Ronaldo to play because I don't think our defenders uh, actually carry that baggage of uh, playing up against him and uh, and letting in goals the whole time. And I think he really unbalances the team. And I think, interestingly enough, Michael Carrick has probably seen that. Um, but whether they can drop him for two games running, uh, I don't know. Uh, one more thing, Amy. Um, Art wrote in the week about needing to rest uh, uh, Bukayo Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe. It ain't happening on Thursday, is it? <laughs> I don't think it's happening anytime soon. I've got to tell you. Um, no, I, I just think. Well, obviously, we're hoping that Bukayo Saka is absolutely fine after uh, the knock that that he picked up over the weekend. But um, they're so integral to everything that Arsenal does. That's positive. It is a, a slight concern to think about 
who you know how you cover for either of them at one stage or another if they're not available particularly Smith Rowe I think in some ways because if I had one slight concern as well over the the, the week it was a very it was ended up being quite a comfortable game and and against Newcastle there were two things and I was interested to see Arteta talk about this afterwards when he said one of the next phases of development of the team is when you're 2-0 up and comfortable with 25 minutes to go you know how do you then kick on and twist the knife rather than just sort of like play play safely and pragmatically and sort of see the game out and you know that's an that is another phase of Arsenal's development where you think look I I Looking at the table, it still bugs me to have a minus goal difference. I mean, seriously. <laughs> and yeah. that was an opportunity to m- maybe get back to zero because there could have been a couple more games, uh, goals in that game had Arsenal been like, you know, really in the, in the zone and really confident. I understand that they didn't do that after Anfield, but, you know, just there where you think, OK, let's enjoy yourselves. Go on, boys, get some more. And uh, they weren't ready for that yet. But... Uh, that was one thing, and the other, if we are nitpicking, and the other thing was um, Erdegaard coming in for Lacazette, which was an interesting sort of stylistic choice. But it's it's fascinating when you think of all these new signings that came in in the summer. He was the one that, in theory, should have been the smallest gamble yeah, because they know him. him. He's been there, so you yeah. know exactly what you're getting because, of course with the best will in the world and with as much homework that you do uh, on, a, on a player's habits and personality and, you know, character and family and, and all their qualities and all the data that can project how they might do, it's still always, a, a, a you know, a, a risk that you don't know if it's going to be uh, all the great things that you hope for happen or some of the things that you maybe fear about turn out to be the case. So Odegaard should have been the the, the the dead cert, really. And yet, of all of them, he seems to be the one maybe finding it the most difficult to make an impact. And given a start, you just, you know, what do you want from your number 10, you know? And, play, you know, moving the ball with really, really tidy precision that he does is great. But you do really want some sort of goals and assists and end product as well and I'm just curious to see if he can if he can add that on a bit more of a consistent basis because the team needs it and if Smith Rowe is out the team then that link player who you know who suddenly changes gear to or or finds a a little uh, piece of vision and and a pass that opens up the game is that going to come from Odegaard don't know at the moment uh, no, uh, James. I imagine, and we we will move on move on in a second. But I imagine that Lacazette will probably start on Thursday. Um, bit of experience in the lineup. Yeah, I was just thinking about that myself. I think he will. But Amy makes a point about you know the the other creative players in the team. I mean, I thought Bukayo Saka was instrumental in Arsenal getting the breakthrough against Newcastle. He, he created the chance for Smith Rowe that was saved, and Aubameyang missed the follow up. He almost uh, scored a sensational goal just before he did actually score, where he went down the right-hand side, you know, cut between two players and produced a fairly tame shot. I just thought he was Arsenal's most dangerous player in that first hour. And if he's missing on Thursday night, then 
there may be, even with Smith-Rowe inside, a bit of a creativity deficit. Arteta might think, oh, maybe I need to include Odegaard, you know, to have someone there who might be able to find the through ball, find the breakthrough. If and there is... Sorry, James, there is a bit of creativity deficit anyway, isn't there? Exactly. I mean, this yeah. whole thing about our expected... We were ranked 15th in the Premier League for non-penalty expected goals, which measures the quality of chances. Um, mm. and, and we're not creating enough chances, and that is obviously down to the creative players, or some of the creative players, not doing their job. Yeah, I do think Arteta faces an interesting decision, certainly, between Odegaard and Lacazette. I think if Odegaard had come in and you know, really played to his potential against Newcastle, then I think that would have helped to keep him his place. But I'm not quite sure he did manage that. I think that, you know, he, he had moments. And I think in the second half, he was better. And when he drifted out to the right-hand side, I thought he was better, combining with Tommy Asu and Saka and later Martinelli on that flank. But I don't think this was sort of the masterful performance we were hoping for from him. And I think it's... Yeah, it's, there's a decision to be made, certainly for Thursday. I think Arteta might go for Lacazette, but we shall wait and see. Just on that goal difference point, because I think this is really interesting. Incredibly, there are only four teams in the Premier League who have a positive goal difference right now. Um, so there's the top three who have positive goal difference. Chelsea have 26, Manchester City plus 20, Liverpool plus 28. Then you've got West Ham on plus eight and everybody else in the league is either on a zero or a negative goal difference, which I think demonstrates the kind of mini league that exists within this league and probably shows West Ham are the team we need to catch and we need to beat this season. Quite. I actually I saw the table, actually. I had a look at the table after the game but I, and I saw Liverpool plus 28 and I... I had to take a second look at that. I thought, hang on, they've only played 13 games, but they are a scoring machine at the moment and they spanked another team uh, 4-0 uh, at the weekend. Uh, one more thing, by the way, on Odegaard. I know, sorry, I was going to move on, but the crowd did get a little bit angry with him when he miscontrolled a ball. A lovely bit of play uh, that got the ball to him in that sort of number 10 spot and he miscontrolled it and there was a, a little hint of anger and I thought, people need to calm down. A little bit. I know we paid a lot of money for him and he's Norway captain, all the rest of it, but these are young players and mistakes are going to be made. And I think we just need to get behind the team. I think our support is as important as ever at this point, really, just to get them through those difficult periods. This is Handbreak Off, uh, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. James, this week you have been speaking with Edu. A lovely interview. You seem to be getting on very well with him. He was very open and uh, and um, honest about his time. The thing that really struck me was how determined he was. I mean, imagine turning up with the board and think you're going to start playing for Arsenal and uh, t- you get told you got a, fa- a false passport and um, you end up in jail. <laughs> yeah, it was a very traumatic time for him um the reason that i wanted to interview edu is basically like you guys i went along to the premiere of the arsene wenger invincible movie and when i was watching it there are great photos in there from Stuart mcfarlane and all those iconic moments that wenger was involved in the double in 2002 the invincible so many landmark wins edu was right there he was front and center he's involved in so much of it and played an awful lot of football particularly in that invincible season. He played 48 games in all competitions. And I think it's interesting, you know, we, we debate his current role, uh, which is obviously very distinct and very separate. But amidst all that, sometimes I think we forget his history with Arsenal. And um, it is a kind of a very traumatic, very sad story as well, because, you know, he was due to arrive in the summer of uh, 2000, I think it was, and had these problems with the fake passport. He'd been misled by an agent, essentially. He did qualify for a Portuguese passport, but the, the one that he had was a counterfeit. Was sent back to Brazil, had six months in Brazil, broke his ankle in that period of time. Uh, there was issues with his contract because he was kind of caught between two clubs. Eventually, uh, the passport situation was resolved after, I think, about three months. And in the January transfer window, he was scheduled to come back to Arsenal and 10 days, I think, before he was due to fly and permanently join the club, he lost his sister in a, a car accident. And it was a huge tragedy, of course, for the whole family. Edu changed plans. He was going to come on his own, I think, initially to England. Instead, he brought his entire family with him. I think he was there with his wife, uh, his parents, his brother. They were all staying in the Sopo House Hotel they essentially had this adaptation period through which they're experiencing this enormous grief. To top that, when he made his Arsenal debut, he was injured within 10 minutes. I think on his first start, he managed to score an own goal. It was just calamity and tragedy on top of each other. And an incredibly testing, trying period for any individual. And I think one of the most sort of touching elements of the story that we spoke about was, yes... His perseverance, you know, the desire of his family to see him fulfill his dream and the way in which they supported him through that. But I was also very moved by the way in which he spoke about Arsene Wenger and how every week in training, you know, he would call him into his office and talk to him. And every week, Edu thought he was going to say, right, I'm not happy with your performance or we need to improve in training. And every week, he was amazed that that just never came up. All Arsene wanted to know was, was he all right as a person? And I found that a great testament to Arsene, not just as a human being, but as a manager, you know, being able to sense and understand what a player required, what a person required. And yeah, I have to take my hat off to Edu. I think, you know, whatever you think of him as a technical director, 
his achievements as a player speak for themselves. And while I knew the story of the difficulties he'd been through at Arsenal, I don't think I knew them. I don't think I'd really thought about what that experience must have been like. Uh, And it, it genuinely is quite an amazing story. And it sounds like it was an incredibly testing time, but I think he feels very satisfied and very proud that he saw it through and went on to become you know, an important player at Arsenal and, and one of the invincibles and a very decent player too. I mean, it's he's not sort of in that first 11 of names that you'd reel off for the invincibles, but was involved in some really crucial moments in that season. And I think, you know, was a significant loss actually when he left Arsenal in, in 2005. Well, you do you do write about that as well. There's lots of things that you said there. Arsene Wenger's man management, the fact that he played 48 games in the invincible season, which I must say was a surprise. Also, I remember him playing in that game in uh, at Manchester United when we won the title. Uh, in what, to me, I look through that team and I think that's, I think, my favourite team, even more than the Invincibles, in terms of how tough they were. And I, and I thought, my God, I can't imagine how anyone could ever beat that team. Amy, uh, it was when we saw him at the um, at the Premier the other week, and he looked so happy, and he looked so much part of the fabric of the club now. To come from, to, to be in that position and to think about the journey he took, and it's all in James's piece, he must have a, a quite a character, the chap. Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things about Edu is that uh, when you when you meet him and talk to him, he really is sort of charm personified. He's got a very uh, personable kind of warmth. Uh, he's got that lovely Brazilian way of trying to smile and make people feel happy around him and... Uh, spread good vibes but I think underneath it all there's a there's an absolute steely side as well and that was evident in everything that he went through uh, as a player and as a person when he was you know he was he was a young man and to think of of all that happening to you when you're what in your sort of early to mid 20s or what have you um, in another country amazingly challenging and you know I, I think a lot of people because he wasn't at the club for years and years although it was a very kind of intensive period of a lot of uh very emotional things happening um both personally and professionally to be in that team as well you know i think it obviously got really massively under his skin and i think he tries to use some of those lessons in what he does now obviously the kind of technical side of talent identification and dealing with people and deals and so on is one thing. But I think he prides himself in his work to try and be a sort of a, a sort of a friend to the players, a sort of an ear, um, a communicator. I think he sees that as as much part of his day-to-day role as being on the phone to agents and whoever else he has to speak to. Uh, families and and players' representatives and God knows other clubs, um, and that you know that experience of of what he had with Arsene. I remember speaking to him about that years ago for the Invincible book, and it, the look on his face when he was talking about about how Arsene was with him, and he it was like almost disbelief that someone could be like that in that profession. Didn't expect it. And he said every single day when they went in in the morning and they shook hands, like 
as everybody did in those days um, when they greeted each other in the morning. Arsene would look him straight in the eye and say, how are you? How's your mum? How's your dad? How's your brother? You know, he was not just asking about him, but asking about his family for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And having that, having someone that you look up to take that interest in you is quite a powerful thing. And I think that he tries to, not in the same way, but he tries to make it known to the players that if they need anything, he'll be there for them. Yeah, it does feel that way. Go on, James. I was just going to say there was a nice story uh, that came out of the club last week, I think on the official website, about Gabriel um, getting his first call up to the Brazilian national squad. And Edu was speaking about his pride in it and telling the story of how he he rang Mikel and said, you know, Gabby's got his first call up to the Brazil squad. He And he knew what that meant because Eddie was someone who waited quite a long time for international recognition and asking Arteta to ring him and deliver the news. And then Edu called Gabriel's father back in Brazil and was able to tell him. And, you know, there were just some echoes of that kind of pastoral element of the job that you don't necessarily think about. We think about technical directors being about transfers, recruitment, in and out. But there is that kind of, slight duty of care element to it, being someone who's a communicative figure. Uh, and I just thought that was a nice example, really, of of him in that role. And I guess uh, as someone who came over and was, you know, Silvino left after six months, um, Eddie was not an English speaker, really, when he arrived. We've actually got a, quite a big Portuguese-speaking contingent at the clubs. So for someone like Martinelli, I'm sure it's pretty helpful having someone like Edu in that technical director role. Okay, uh, let's have a song to end uh, the podcast. Um, I have been, I, I've, by the way, Amy, I should point out, as you admonished me last week, I've actually, I know the song that I've chosen, okay, this time. <laughs> <laughs> but let's have a song from you first. What have you got? Well, everyone seems to be talking about it. I don't have Disney Plus because I think there is a limit to how many things you can subscribe to. But um, the Beatles... Doc is uh, uh, seems to be on everybody's lips at the moment. I'm going to go for Get Back. Well, yes, fair enough. And, and I'm in exactly the same uh, spot as you. If they get the football next year, of course, I'll uh, I'll get Disney Plus because what? how could I not? James, what about you? Well, all the Martinelli and Edu chat, I was like, I've got to go for something uh, quintessentially Brazilian, if it's not too much of a cliche, I went for Mashkenada. And I think there's a lot of versions of it, but I think the original was a guy called George Ben. So, yeah, that was my choice. Okay, uh, football fans of a certain vintage will remember an airport scene. Of course, Brazilian football. Inescapable. And uh, I'm having Steady As She Goes by the Raconteurs. Because I feel we're making nice progress and I'm enjoying watching them. We're back on Friday with a bonus episode following the uh, the win at Manchester United. <laughs> so uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, for now, thank you, Amy. Thank you, James. And thank you, Abby, our producer. I'm Ian Stone. And thanks for listening. See you soon. <laughs> 